you know, this time of year, perhaps more than any other, is a time when we celebrate the love of God. And the love that God has given us for that special one. I suppose for many it's a time people look forward to with dread. Those who wish that it never existed. A time to be reminded of one's loneliness. Or a time to be reminded of one that one has loved and lost. Perhaps worse, to have never loved at all. So as we explore the beauty of God's love, I want us I want to be sensitive to those of us for whom this time of year may not be a bed of roses, so to speak. But I hope by the time that this message is over, that each one of us will come to understand more deeply the love that God has for every one of us. You know, it was a typical day in January. It was the year was 2007. I'd been back from Africa for several months, but I hadn't quite adjusted to the climate of Kentucky yet after spending a year in the hot and and, uh, somewhat uh, sweltering desert. I was getting back into the swing of things with my classes, community college, homework, building a freelance computer business, but things were different now. It seemed like the days were brighter. The cold was crisper. The birds seemed to chirp a bit more merrily. Love was in the air, I thought. If only. If only I could manage to tell her. You see, I loved her desperately, but, and I'd been wanting to tell her for quite some time, but I couldn't get up the courage to say it. If you knew me as a kid, I was the shyest kid on the block. Seriously. And and by this time, I was starting to overcome some of this shyness. I'd been in Africa. I'd made lots of friends there. And coming back, still, this was the one thing that I couldn't get past. I couldn't get up the courage to say it. It's not like we'd never talked. I mean, in fact, we'd talked about every day on the phone or on internet chat for quite some time now. And I figured she knew it. And in fact, I figured that she loved me as much as I loved her. But, but we'd never talked about it, and I'd never told her. And what would she say now if I said it to her? Did she really like me as much as I thought she did? Or was I just kidding myself? So I sat down with my Spanish textbook and I was going through, sounding out the words and the phrases in my homework. Now, I don't speak Spanish, by the way. I never have. (laughs) I took it in college. It doesn't mean I speak it, right? Tengo hambre. Esto es sediento. I heard a little bell on on a computer ding. And I I saw Christina's online. So I popped on my computer. Hi, Meadowlark. We had these little names for each other and still do. We chatted a bit. I told her I had to do my homework. But I was like, well, we can do our homework together. So I started putting in the phrases in in the chat box as I was working through. And she was just looking them up on the Internet to see what they would mean. And I was sounding them out. Estoy cansado. Estoy informado. Hmm, I was musing to myself. Estoy enamorado. <laughs> I think I'm in love. I didn't send that one to her. I would, that had a better one, though. Te quiero. I put that in the chat box. That's I love you in Spanish. I hit enter before I could take it back. I waited. <laughs> I held my breath. Silence. 
More silence. <laughs> the second seems like hours. Finally, I get a reply back. In all capital letters. Is this what you mean? Question mark. Because she sent a link to the Google translation. <laughs> yes, I wrote back. That's what I mean. Why shouldn't I? <laughs> it wasn't long before my phone rang. <laughs> we talked. We laughed. I think she might have been a little bit upset that I said it on chat and not on the phone, at least. <laughs> this is the only way I could get up the courage to actually say it. <laughs> I'd done it. You know, just a few weeks later was Valentine's Day. And I asked her, will you be my Valentine? And she said yes. It was just over a year later, I flew to Washington State and asked her if she would be my wife. And she said yes. And about a year after that, we got married. And uh, well, the rest is history, you know that. <laughs> We've celebrated just this past week our 13th Valentine's Day together. I asked her again, and she still said yes. You know, I, support, I suppose I'm boring you too much with, my little, with our little story. But it's special to us, and we laugh about those days. And, you know... We've had our bad days. We've had our hard times. But I've, through it all, I've come to love and appreciate the, even more every day the relationship that God has given to the two of us. And there's no doubt an element of character development when it comes to the marriage relationship. That there's so much more blessing. And through it all, I've seen a clearer picture of God's love for each one of us. Through her love, for me. You know, I believe God has given us this relationship, us as human beings. He's given us the gift of marriage to help us better understand his eternal character of love. You know, our society today tells us that marriage is this social construction. It's made, we've made it by ourselves to repress other members of the human family, to, to, to hedge ourselves in with artificial boundaries. And the, the only way to find true freedom and happiness is to break through these restrictions, to have a revolution, a social revolution, a sexual revolution, and to explore and find our true identities in open relationships or, 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 or uh, sexual experiences that are forbidden by the word of God. But sadly, it seems that humankind, in searching for this joy, this pleasure, this freedom, We've not found ourselves to be happier, but instead more depressed. Suicide rates have gone up and not down. And as, in fact, if you look at the groups of people who are most progressive, so to speak, in these areas, it seems like the depression rates are even higher. If you turn to Genesis chapter 2, we find that God gives us the gift of marriage it was given, given to Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 20. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. 
And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Here, my friends, is love. Here is marriage, according to the Bible. Perhaps the only perfect marriage ever recorded in the Bible. Two perfect people, created fresh from the hand of God and united together in perfect harmony. You know, Mrs. Ellen G. White writes, commenting on this passage, Eve was created from a rib taken from the side of Adam, signifying that she was not to control him as the head, nor to trample under his, be trampled under his feet as an inferior, but to stand by his side as an equal, to be loved and protected by him. A part of man, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, she was his second self, showing the close union and affection, affectionate attachment that should exist in this relation. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, Ephesians 5.29. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What a beautiful picture of the marriage relation, is it not? But sadly, no sooner had sin entered this world than God's perfect creation in marriage was marred. Adam and Eve started blaming each other and blaming God. And I don't think we've seen a perfect marriage since. In fact, I searched the Bible looking for examples to share with you today of a perfect, perfect marriage. And I looked and I looked, but I couldn't seem to find one. Obviously, Adam and Eve started out perfect, but it turned off so sour. I looked at people like, like Noah. Noah had a good wife, but her husband had a drinking problem. Abraham, the father of the faithful, wonderful example, except that for the time we know when he went to, and, and, and uh, he said that his wife was his sister so that the king could marry her. And I mean, what kind of a husband does that? Not to mention he married her slave so that he could have kids when she couldn't have any kids. And, and then, then you'd, you'd look at Isaac and Rebecca. Their marriage started off so beautifully until Rebecca conspired against him in his old age with her, with her son Jacob. A tragic story that broke the family apart, never to be reunited. You know, Jacob's life, it didn't start off on a good note. He had strikes against him, so to speak, when he was born. His name itself means supplanter or deceiver, and he had his share of deceiving and of being deceived. You know, after that horrible plot to trick his father, Jacob found himself running for his life running back to Haran, the the town where his mother had come from, had grown up. And God sends these heavenly angels, this vision of the ladder going from earth to heaven. And Jacob is so encouraged, and he goes on in his journey. Despite the fact that he's just deceived his father, he goes on, for he knows that God is with him. And if, if you will, I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 29. And let's just take a few minutes to look at this story together. The story of Jacob coming to his mother's family. Genesis 29, and starting in verse 1. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, 
and put the stone back in its place at the well's mouth. Now picture this with me, if you will. Jacob is he's coming to his journey's end, and he comes down, and it's an arid desert land, and he sees the well. He sees the flocks of sheep lying out there in the middle of the day. Instead of watering the sheep, though, the shepherds seem just to be waiting, waiting for something. And I don't know why this, this particular rule or whatever, why they were waiting. It seems that maybe they had an agreement. They, they would all wait and water their flocks together. But for whatever reason, they're waiting there, and the well is closed over with a stone. So Jacob comes, and he's, he's, he's asking them, why are you doing this? He says in verse 7, Look, it is still high day, and it's not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep, and then go feed them. But they said, We cannot, until all the flocks are gathered together, and they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we water the sheep. So Jacob is puzzling over why this, why this strange custom. But as he's standing here talking to the, to the shepherds, look what happens. Verse 9. Now while he was speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass that Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Here was Jacob's chance. He would stand and chat with the other shepherds. That was was all fine and good. But when he sees this beautiful young woman coming down from the village with a flock of sheep, his chivalry kicks in. He goes and rolls the stone away and waters the sheep. You know, it's interesting. I think this is just a side note. It's interesting that Rachel is a shepherdess. You know, it seems that we have this thought that the people back in that day, perhaps like many cultures in the Middle East today, the women kind of stayed home. They never ventured out of doors. They never, they were kind of, you know, under the shadow of their husbands or their fathers. But here Rachel is not is not, so to speak, cloistered in a, in a home environment. She's out with the men, presumably, tending the sheep, doing the same job. You know, I think when we, when we read the Bible, it tells us, it gives us a picture of God's plan for both men and women, doesn't it? So Jacob waters Rachel's sheep, and then he greets her with a traditional kiss, and he's overcome with emotion, and he begins weeping. Not so much because he's passionately in love with her at this point, although I, I'm sure that already he's, he's attracted to her, but it's just the fact that he's found his family that he's never met before, and he's overcome with emotion and begins to weep, weeping for joy. So he comes into the village, and he stays there with his uncle Laban for a month. And as soon as it becomes apparent to Laban, now Laban is quite a greedy uncle. If you, if you follow this story, you see what, what I mean. So he's staying there with Laban, and Laban realizes, hey, this Jacob is a good, hard worker. I have got to keep him around. And Jacob, on the other hand, he's penniless. Though he's come from a presumably wealthy family, he's fleeing for his life. And unlike Eliezer, who came in Genesis 24, he came to find Rebekah for Isaac, came with jewels and all kinds of gifts and camels. Jacob is coming alone. All he has is a stick in his hand. He has nothing. He's penniless. And yet, he's falling in love with this woman, with this daughter of Laban. So Laban comes to to Jacob and says, here, let's make a deal. You work for me. What do you want? What, what, what can I pay you? And Jacob's been eyeing this girl, Rachel. 
He says, I'll serve you seven years for your daughter. And that may sound like a kind of a strange thing in today's day, in today's culture. But back back then, and it perhaps wasn't without its merits, back then if a young man wanted to marry a young girl, he had to give what you might call a dowry, a, uh, a price to the, to the family. Now, it wasn't so much that the father needed to make money off of his daughters. He wasn't so much trying. Of course, in this, in this case, Laban was, right? Laban was a greedy uncle. But uh, generally speaking, the family's not trying to sell their daughters, but trying to just ensure that this man is, is worth what, he's, what he says he is, you know? He can actually take care of this girl that he's going to marry, you know? So Jacob's penniless. So he strikes this deal with Laban. I'll work for you seven years for your daughter. In verse 19, Laban says, It's better that I give her to you than that I should give her to another man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Now imagine this picture of love. He's working day after day after day. I mean, seven years is a long time. That's quite a long time. I mean, you can be well into building your career, but he's not built, working for himself. He's working for his uncle because of his love for Rachel. And it seemed as though it was just a few days because of the love he had for her. You know, I'm reminded, you know, you might say that Christina and I are kind of old school in our families a little bit. I still like the tradition where a young man asks the girl's father before he just goes and marries her. I still think that's kind of good, you know? <laughs> it's kind of a good thing in a lot of ways. So finally, I was telling you, I, I could hardly get up the courage to say I love you to even to Christina. But uh, finally, I asked, asked her father for, um, if I could start a relationship with Christina. He didn't answer me right away. He's like, I'm going think about it. That's like the hardest thing, you know? <laughs> Let me think about it. <laughs> like, come on, come on, you know? So anyway, but I heard that um, he really, and, and this is true, he really needed someone to come and help him on a project he was working on. He was doing a construction project, and he couldn't do it by himself, and he couldn't get anyone. I was like, look, um, I, I've been building this computer business, but I've just lost my biggest client, so I'm kind of out of work, um, which was, it was true, although I could have gotten another client pretty easily. I was kind of out of work, <laughs> but I was like, look, I'll fly to Washington State, and I'll help you for, for a few weeks during the summer. He's like, okay, it's a deal. I need some help. So, and I think he wanted to get to know me. He didn't hardly know me from Adam, although he knew me as a little kid. He didn't know. So I flew to Washington State and uh, was up there, and you know, the whole time I was helping him, we had a great time. Great guy. I still love him. Uh, pray for him. He's not doing well, <laughs> but really pray for him. But uh, we were working together. And the whole time, I just couldn't help but think of this story, you know, working seven years for, for <laughs> Jacob, working seven years for Rachel. And I was thinking, is this going to be seven years, right? Well, it wasn't. And it all, it all turned out really good in the end. But uh, finally, the seven years were up for, J- for Jacob. But it's like Laban didn't seem to notice. He's like, I'm going to get every day, every minute, every second I can out of this guy before I have to give up my daughter. So Jacob finally comes, comes to him and says in verse 21, Give me my wife. My days are fulfilled that I may go to her. So Jacob has to remind him, like, okay, the time is up. I've been counting. I've been marking it off on the calendar, right? It, it seemed like only a few days, but he knows when the time is up. Give me my wife. I've earned her, right? 
So Laban dutifully calls a feast. He invites all the guests. He prepares everything. And a feasting, that first day of feasting, draws to a close. Jacob is excited. He might be a little bit drunk by this point. I don't know. <laughs> but he's excited. And, and, and it, the tradition was that they would bring the bride after sunset, after the sun went down. The father would bring the bride, and she would be veiled. And so here she comes, Laban's bringing, bringing, bringing his daughter. And they go, and they have their first night. And if the sun comes up, Jacob looks, and Rachel's not there. It's Rachel's ugly big sister, Leah. <laughs> and Jacob is upset. And that's an understatement. He goes, what have you done? What have you done? He's like, you go, I can't give Rachel before I marry off Rachel's big sister. You just work another seven years and you can have Rachel too. What a trick. Although you have, to, you have to wonder if this is not Jacob's own sin in deceiving his father coming back around to meet him. As they say, what goes around comes around. It was certainly true for Jacob. Well, a week later, he was able to marry Rachel, but he had to serve Laban another seven years. Fourteen years for the woman he loved. Fourteen years. But sadly, it was far from the perfect marriage. Bickering between the sisters, I can only imagine. Don't even, don't even try polygamy. Those are, I mean, just... <laughs> um, but just this thought that he would work for his uncle for 14 years for Rachel, it blows me away. You know, I think it's another picture of God's love. It's a picture of grace like we've never seen before. You know, I mentioned how Eliezer came almost 100 years before to find a wife for, for Isaac. And, and when Rebecca had come out of the town, Rebecca, you know the story, she came to the well, she drew water for Eliezer and for his camels. But this story is different. It's a little bit different. Go back to when Jacob first met Rachel. Jacob comes to the town, he sees Rachel coming. And she does nothing. She's, she's a hard worker, no doubt, but she does nothing. Jacob is the one who gives the water to her. You know, years later, Jacob would, would return to the land of Abraham and Isaac, the promised land, and he, there he would dig a well. And for centuries, that well would serve the people of his descendants for many centuries, until one day, a man named Jesus was passing through the land of Samaria. And he stopped there at Jacob's well. There he saw a woman coming out of the town, coming to draw water from the well. And like Jacob, Jesus had come with nothing in his hand, not even a pitcher to draw water with. But as Jesus spoke to that Samaritan woman, his heart overflowed with God's love for her, and he offered her a drink, not a drink from the well, but a drink of living water. Like Rachel, there was nothing that this woman could do for herself to reach this living water. She'd been searching all her life, 
until her life was broken and in pieces. It was as though a stone covered the mouth of the well, the well of living water, and there was no way to access it until Jesus came. But when Jesus came, it is as though he rolled back that stone and gave her to drink of that fountain of living water that springs up to everlasting life. Just as Rachel's life was changed forever in that meeting with Jacob, so in this moment the Samaritan woman's life was changed when she found one whom all the world had been searching for, the one who could roll back the stone, the one who could give her, and the one who could give me living water. When we come into Jesus' presence, I believe his heart like the heart of Jacob, is overflowing with love for us. I don't know what he sees in us that is so attractive. In fact, I think that if anything, when he looks at us, he must see the, the dull eyes of the, the ugly big sister. But, but he doesn't. He sees something attractive in you and me. And for whatever reason, he falls in love with us. And he gives us his favor. Nothing we can do to earn it. It's unmerited. And that's the beauty of grace. Song of Solomon 2, verse 4. This is the verse Natalia read for us earlier. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. But you know, for Jacob, that was only the beginning. The meeting at the well was only the beginning of many hard years of service before he could claim his bride. Did Jesus have to work for us? Did he have to sacrifice for us? Oh yes, my friends. If you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 63, Isaiah chapter 63 and verse 3, it says of Christ, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. It wasn't easy for Jesus to love us, Picture Jacob slaving for seven years for the one that he loved, and yet he said it seemed like a few days because of his love for her. The sufferings of Christ, as great as they were, seemed like just a few moments to him because of his love for you. Isaiah 63 and verse 5, I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own theory, it sustained me. And in verse 7, I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies, according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. My friends, Jesus paid a price for you and for me that we can't begin to imagine. First Peter 1 and 8, verse 18, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. 
But, you know, I wonder if this last part of the story has some relevance to us too. Just when Jacob was finished, just when he was ready to go in and receive his bride, he had to start all over again. He had to start another se- and work another seven years. It gives me hope because, my friends, how many times has Jesus had to start all over again with you? How many times has he had to start all over again with me? Just when we were ready to commit, just when we were ready to give our lives to him, we drew back and said, no, not now. And the Lord again has had to work on our hearts time and time and time again. And yet he never grew impatient. He continued to draw you until you surrender to him. Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 25 to 28, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. You see, we've come full circle. You know, I think I have to take back that statement I said at the beginning. I said I couldn't find a perfect example of a perfect marriage in the Bible, but I have found one. And that's this relationship between Christ and his church. Not so much because the church is perfect. In fact, the church and the bride is far from perfect, but because of the groom. And because of his grace, we can enter into a perfect an eternal marriage because of him. Revelation 22 and verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come, and whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Friends, perhaps today, You are lonely. Perhaps you've loved and lost. Perhaps you've never had a special one in your life that you've always longed for. Perhaps you're married, and yes, even happily, but like the woman at the well, you find yourself still longing for something more, for something more fulfilling. My friends, look to Jesus. He's longing for you. He's longing more than a bride and groom longs for each other. He says in Hosea, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. And Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. And Isaiah and Jeremiah 31, 3. Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. My friends, Jesus loves you more than you can ever imagine. Will you accept that love today? Kind and loving Father in heaven, thank you for your love. How can we ever possibly imagine just how much you love us, which you do. Help us, Lord, today and every day to draw deeper 
into that love and to tell others about your love and your soon return. In Jesus' name, amen.